0: Our sermon text today is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible there in front of you, or if you want to look at the back of your bulletin, it's also printed there. I'll invite you to turn to Mark 11, and as is our custom, I'll ask you to stand, if you're able to, for the reading of God's Word this morning. Give ear to the reading of God's Word. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Mark writes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David." Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Even as Christians just pray, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures. Uh, that we don't have to grope around in the dark to figure out who you are and to understand the way of salvation or how you would have us to live out of gratitude for what you've done for us in Christ. We pray that even now, once again, that you would teach us by your Spirit, give us understanding, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we saw last Sunday, if you were here, that Mark 11 marks the uh, kind of a transition in the book. It marks the beginning of of the Passion Week of Christ. In other words, it's the, it's the final week of Christ's earthly ministry. It, it, at the end of this week, uh, towards the end of this week, is when he's going to be put on trial, crucified, and rise from the dead. And so, as we saw again last time, the first 10 chapters, Mark is 16 chapters long, the first 10 chapters basically takes up the bulk of Christ's earthly ministry, three, basically three years. Mark certainly doesn't include everything. None of the Gospels include everything. John says that you know, if he was to include all the miraculous things that Christ had done, there wouldn't be enough room in all the books that we could write. So he focuses on, as they all did, certain things to, to make his case. Well, this last six chapters then of Mark deals with one week, or approximately one week. And we saw last time that's because the Bible and the Gospels is about the, cru- the, the death and resurrection uh, of Christ. So that should be very telling for us that, that Mark spends so much time on this final final week. And what's the first thing we see in chapter 11, this section where Mark begins to deal with the Passion Week? It's the, it's the triumphal entry. What we think of, you know, I thought about calling this sermon Palm Sunday in August. You, know, you have Christmas in July for all the sales. We have Palm Sunday in August this morning. Well, this triumphal entry... Uh, that we see here is when Christ finally publicly comes into Jerusalem and basically announces uh, in some way, or let's the crowd announce for him, who he was and what he came uh, to do. The people rolled out the proverbial red carpet for him uh, with their cloaks, with the uh, branches, palm branches and things. Now, if you've been reading or if you've been following along with us in our study of Mark's Gospel, or maybe if you've just been reading it on your own, you might remember That so far in the first ten chapters, uh, Jesus has been been trying to keep things very hush-hush. It's hard to do that when you're the Messiah and you're healing people and raising people from the dead. You tend to attract crowds. But over and over in in the book of Mark, uh, in these previous chapters, I, I counted at least seven times where Jesus performed some kind of a miracle and then told the person or the crowds to keep silent to not tell everybody about what he just did. He wasn't trying to attract crowds in the first 10 chapters. Also in those previous chapters, what do you find? You find Jesus repeatedly trying to get away from the crowds, withdrawing from the crowds, going away, trying to enter a place secretly, going off by himself even at times uh, to pray. That's, that's the, the way things are going all the way through those first 10 chapters. There's not much public at least voluntarily so, about Christ's earthly ministry early on, for most of it. But now at the beginning of chapter 11, it's like somebody flips a switch. There's a big change in chapter 11, starting with our text. All of a sudden, he goes from kind of going secretly from place to place the best he can to coming all the way out in the open and even accepting the adulation and praise of the crowds. He doesn't shy away from the attention and the praise, even the worship. Now he opens, he comes into Jerusalem openly. He comes into Jerusalem now for the first time really publicly with, with much fanfare. And he does that despite the fact that the Jewish, the unbelieving Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisee scribes, and others, all the way back in chapter 3, verse 6, we were told that they were plotting with the Herodians how they might destroy him or kill him. They've wanted him dead since the third chapter of Mark's gospel. Well, now they're going to... It's almost as if he comes out and paints a bullseye on his chest. You want me? Here I am. That's, that's basically what he's doing in some sense here when he enters into Jerusalem. So their attempts, their plots to destroy and kill him weren't going to decrease. They were about to, to increase quite a bit. If We're going to see that in these chapters as we we go on through chapters 11 and following. well. J.C. Ryle, I think, makes a helpful observation about Jesus' coming out party here. He says, here and here only, our Lord appears to drop his private character, secretive character, "and, and of his own choice to call public attention to himself. He deliberately makes a public entry into Jerusalem at the head of his disciples. He voluntarily rides into the holy city, surrounded by a vast multitude, crying Hosanna, like King David returning to his palace in triumph. All this was done at at a time when myriads of Jews were gathered out of every land to to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. We may well believe that the holy city rang with the tidings of our Lord's arrival. It is probable that there was not a house in Jerusalem in which the entry of the prophet of Nazareth was not known and talked of that night. That's a public entry. Everyone in Jerusalem was talking about Jesus. Jesus. No one, you would have had to have been hiding under a rock to miss his entry. He didn't, you know, think about everything that he did. He didn't come in kind of in the middle of the crowd, you know, where nobody saw him. He deliberately got, had his disciples get a donkey. He had a mount. He had a ride into the city. He's sitting up above the crowd in some ways. So we're going to look at at least three things from our text. We're going to see the first thing we're going to look at is that cult the cult of a donkey, the king's mount. The second thing we're going to see in verses 7 through 10 is the king's welcome. And the third thing we're going to see is, is this is a triumphal entry. We're going to see in verse 11 a hint of the king's triumph. So the king's mount, the king's welcome, and the king's triumph. That first thing we're going to see is the king's mount. Mark, you know, if you think about it, if you look at the text, these are short 11 verses. For some reason, he spends most of the time in our text on that cult, the other, the other gospel writers don't, don't do it as much as Mark does. Mark, for some reason, is fixated on that colt uh, of a donkey that Jesus used to ride into, his, uh, into Jerusalem on that triumphal entry. Look at verses 1 through 3. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat untie it and bring it if anyone says to you why are you doing this say the lord has need of it and he will send it back here immediately now you might notice that mark doesn't use the word donkey does he he uses the word colt now the word colt is kind of an ambiguous word it can be used of a colt of a horse a foal or it can be used of a foal of of a donkey he doesn't specify what it what it was as as john and matthew both Both do John and Matthew. It's it's in their gospels that we learn specifically that it was a cult of a donkey, a foal uh, of a donkey. And so it's not surprisingly, because Mark or Matthew and John go to such lengths to point that out, that they're the ones that quote Zechariah chapter nine, verse verse nine. In other words, Matthew and John both seem to be trying to make a point about the specific animal that Jesus rode. And one of the points they were trying to make was that it was a fulfillment, that there was a reason that Jesus picked that, that cult of a donkey, that it was a fulfillment of Messianic prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, which says this. And they both quoted in their Gospels. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Zechariah 9.9. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, which is just what they did. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he... And here it is, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Seems like a small detail to us, but it's the fulfillment of a very specific Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. Now that prophecy was back in uh, around 520 BC. So 500 years beforehand was this prophecy from Zechariah about about the, the manner in which the Messiah was to come into Jerusalem like exactly how he was to come in, how the crowd was going to behave. Shout aloud, rejoice greatly. That's exactly what they what they did. He says to them, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. And then he says, how did he come? He didn't come on a war horse, did he? He came, what? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He even specifies that it wasn't going to be a, a mature you know, old, grown-up donkey. It was going to be a colt, a foal of a donkey, and as Jesus even says, one that no one had ever sat on. An unbra- it was almost as if it was reserved for him, for his, for his ride into Jerusalem. Think about that. This, Just like all the other things you see in the Gospels, they fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah to a T, even the ones that we might not think of as very important ones, but the Gospel writers point out, Zechariah 9, 9 at least, twice now now mark mark devotes quite a bit of attention to the details surrounding the selection of this donkey but he doesn't point out zechariah's prophecy so he doesn't really spend time focusing our attention on that rather what he does is he points you and i to the way the remarkable way that jesus arranged uh, for having this donkey or the way that he acquired it the first thing he does is he tells two disciples we don't know who it was we might suspect that it was Peter and one of the other ones, since Peter is the kind of the source behind Mark's gospel and he maybe doesn't want to name himself, but Jesus tells two of them to go ahead of them into the village and then he uses Mark's favorite word. Immediately, verse 2, what were they going to find? A colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Verse, verse 2, and what does he say? They were to untie it and bring it back to him. You just go into town, the town that we haven't gotten to yet, and you're going to find a colt tied in front of a door, in front of a place. And I want you to just untie it and bring it back. And you can almost hear the wheels turning in the disciples' heads, like, ah, you know, um, that's that's going to look kind of funny, don't you think? We just start walking up to people's property, and uh, you know, you know, and what they used to do to horse thieves. Imagine they didn't have much of a higher opinion about uh, donkey thieves or colt thieves. And so, what does what does he say? He says he says to them uh, that that bring it back to them and and He'll tell them what to say. It's as if this donkey they were going to find had been reserved for Jesus just for this occasion. It's it's set up for him to have them do this. And he says that if anybody tried to stop them, he says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? What are you supposed to say? The Lord has need of it. That's all you have to tell him. The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, the, 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 the last part of that verse can be taken one of two ways. It can mean the Lord has need of it and he, the Lord, will send it back here when he's done. I don't think that's what it's saying. It's the Lord has need of it. Re- really, the, the, best, the most a- ambiguous way to translate it would be the Lord has need of it and he will send it back here immediately. He, I think, refers to the people who own the donkey. He's saying, relax, I've got this. Tell them the Lord has need of it and they'll send it back with you right away. They won't even question you. As soon as you tell them the Lord needs it, you're going to have the donkey. That's the way it's going to happen. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says, And they went away and found a colt, tied at a door outside in the street, just like Jesus said. And they untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? Good question. It's, that, that doesn't belong to you, right? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Simple as that. Just like Jesus said, notice, everything happened exactly the way Jesus told them it was going to happen. To a T. You know, Jesus didn't run ahead of them, spy the place out, find the donkey, and then come running back out of breath. Okay, there's a place. He hasn't gotten there yet. He tells them, you guys go ahead of us. And this is what you're going to find. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to say. And this is what's going to happen after you say it. And, And what happens? Exactly that. Down to to the letter. Everything happened precisely the way Jesus said that it would. You now Matthew and John's gospel, they, they focus on the fulfilled prophecy of Zechariah nine. Mark's gospel focuses on the fulfillment of Jesus' own words and the authority that lay behind them in what happened. Now think about how incredible this must have seemed to the disciples. It's easy for us to read this short text and just kind of think, well, of course, that happened all the time. Anytime Jesus told them to do something, they just. When he said jump, they said how high. They never questioned anything. They never scratched their head or wonder what happened. That's not true, is it? This this must have been something that when they saw it happen, they were amazed. And and when what everything Jesus said happened, everything he said for them to do, uh, they did. And everything he told them to say, happened as as it should. Now many people have offered different explanations for how this could possibly have happened. Uh, Some say this must mean that Jesus had made arrangements ahead of time. Now, Jesus hasn't been in Jerusalem for quite some time. So Jesus would have had to have arranged this a long time prior for that to be even remotely possible. Uh, Others suggest that Jesus had become acquainted with the owners of the cult long before this time. Now, he may have known the people. They may have even been disciples of Christ. But how long had this cult been around? It was a cult that was so young, no one had ever ridden on it. But Jesus somehow knew that colt was there, and that it was going to be tied to a doorway, and that the owners might even be standing there asking, "Why are you taking the colt? Why are you untying it?" Surely the fact, again, that it was a colt suggests this this, this colt must have been born long after the last time Jesus had been in Jerusalem. That can't be the explanation. I think we're weird. What you and I are supposed to see here is a demonstration of the miraculous knowledge and sovereign authority of our Savior and our King. The King is about to ride into Jerusalem, the holy city, the city that that David's palace was in, and he's giving his disciples a little foretaste of his knowledge and authority. What he says goes, and what he says is what came to pass. This displays for the disciples the extent of his authority as the King. His word can be trusted. His word is to be obeyed and is obeyed. And those who trust and obey his word, even if they don't quite understand why they're doing what they're doing, will find that his words, unlike those of our earthly kings, never fall to the ground or fail. Now we see something similar to this same thing later on in Mark chapter 4, when he's instituting the Lord's Supper, Mark 14, verses 12 to 16. This is probably a more familiar text. He says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb... And the disciples set out and went to the city, and this is what Mark says in verse 16, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now again, the, the, the unbelieving mind, I think, or the, the, you know, it's easy for us to say, well, Jesus made all those arrangements ahead of time. He, he arranged for a man to randomly be carrying a, a jar of water, just at the right time when the disciples showed up, it seems very intricate, Sounds like something from a spy movie. You're going to see this guy, and he's going to have this password and a jar of water, and you're going to go and say, Joe sent me, and there's going to be a password. None of that happens. He, he tells them, this is what you're going to find when you go there. It's as if he's already watching it before, before they get there. Here's what you, you're going to see, and what do they see? Exactly what he says, and his word comes to pass, and his word is obeyed. And I think there's a lesson for us, as there always is, in the church today. You know, when we go out in faith and seek to do God's will in all things, we can be sure that our king's words will never fail or fall to the ground either. You set out to obey the Lord, take him at his word. And if you do that, you too, just like the disciples here, these two, will find that everything that he has said is just as he has told you. Everything that you find will be just the way he told you. You know, a lot of times there's a number of things that we could talk about. Maybe the Great Commission is the most obvious one. A lot of what Jesus commands us to do from a worldly perspective makes no sense. It makes no sense. And in fact, many seek to do God's work in their own way. Uh, Jesus says, uh, basically, you know, go, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all the things I've commanded you. And lo, you know, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. I know I slipped in part of the baptism part, uh, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all that. None of that sounds great. So the worldly mind, that sounds foolish. In fact, the Bible calls preaching, what I'm doing, thank you very much, foolishness. Maybe some some Sundays you probably agree with that that assessment. Um, You know, it's not how you, if you and I were going to, you know, be the masterminds and say, okay, how are we going to make the gospel go to all the ends of the earth and and build build Christ's church? uh, Well, you don't have to go far to see how people think of doing things their own ways in churches these days. But what does Jesus say? Preach the gospel. People are going to think it's dumb. People are going to think it's foolish. But Jesus, the Lord Jesus, works through his preached word. The Holy Spirit works through the preached word of all the things he could use to save and sanctify sinners. That's what he uses. And so our thing to do is to trust that as he says, I will be, you know, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What does that mean? It means disciples are going to be made. You know, fear not. Doesn't mean everyone's going to believe, but but the church is not going to fail. The 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 church. What does he say? He's going to build his church. Who is building his church? At least if we follow his word and do what he says, are we building his church? No, Christ builds his church. And what does he do? And the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Never prov- So we should seek to do whatever God has us to do, and we'll see. If we take him at his word, that we'll find everything just as he said, just as he told us, just as he had told the disciples. Well, the second thing we see in our text is a king's welcome. In verses 7 to 10, Mark writes this, And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, uh, I think you might find this interesting to note. If you look at chapter 10, the passage we just looked at last Sunday, the the healing of blind Bartimaeus in verses 46 to 52, and then look at our text this morning, there are a number of parallels uh, in the wording of both. There, there so many connections between the two. It's, it's, not, it's not easy to figure out why they're there, but to see that they're there is pretty interesting. You see, in both texts, someone crying out, same word in the Greek, crying out to or about Jesus. In the previous text, Bartimaeus was crying out over and over again, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Well, now you have the crowds crying out, same word that is translated here as shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, both passages, oddly enough, speak of someone throwing their cloak. Same word. You had, you know, uh, you had Bartimaeus when they said, when when the people have to tell Bartimaeus, he's calling you. What is he? What's the first thing he does? Chucks off his cloak, springs up and comes to Jesus and gets healed. Well, what do you have here? They bring the colt back to Jesus. Same word. They throw their cloak. They don't just place. It. They throw their cloak on top of the donkey and he gets on it and rides it. And lastly. What was the last thing that Bartimaeus did in verse 52 of the previous chapter? When Jesus had told him, go your way, your faith has made you well or saved you, he followed Jesus. He said, wherever you're going, I'm going. Well, who's, who's some of the people doing the shouting about Jesus on, on this Palm Sunday when, when Jesus' triumphal entry, it says many people, not just before him, but those following, same word, slightly different, you know, there's a play on words there, those who are following him were shouting his praise on that way into Jerusalem as well. Now, notice first the reaction of the crowds in Jerusalem. Not only did the disciples throw their cloaks on top of that colt for Jesus to sit on; it didn't have a saddle. Nobody had ever ridden it before. It was an unbroken colt. But many in the cro- many people in the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. It's an odd thing. You know, we, you don't see people putting their jackets on the ground. I remember in some of the old movies. You'd see, you know, a, a woman and a man walking, and there'd be a puddle on the street. And the man would take his jacket off and put it, you know, it's like, I'd be horrified at that now, like, oh, you're going to get it filthy. But you, he put his jacket on the puddle or whatever, and the woman could walk across without getting her feet, at least not getting her feet dirty. You know, chivalry. Hopefully it's not, it's not dead. Uh, wear wear uh, waterproof coats, guys, if you're going to follow that one. Um, but they spread their cloaks on the road. Other people spread branches. It doesn't say palm branches in Mark's text, but we know that from other texts that that's what it was. Palm branches on the road. This is like the king's welcome. Now, they, they didn't know ahead of time. They basically heard as he was coming. So it wasn't like they could take two months and prepare and have an actual red carpet. They took whatever they could find. So their jacket, the leaves, the branches. This was the king's welcome. This was kind of the, the, the red carpet treatment for Christ. But think about it. Whose feet were touching the ground? The colt. Jesus is riding this donkey. Think about that. It's as if the ground wasn't good enough the, the, the donkey's hooves, the one that was carrying Christ, were too important, too special, too holy to even touch the dirt. That's kind of the picture that's going on here. And not only that, notice what the crowds say or what they were shouting. A lot of shouting going on here in these last two chapters. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest, verses 9 through 10. Now, our call to worship this morning was Psalm 118, and the reason I picked that was because they quoted the crowds that are shouting Hosanna. They're really quoting parts of Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26, where it says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, save us, or save us, we pray, that is a tr- the English translation of the of the Hebrew word Hosanna. That's what Hosanna means: save us, or save us, we pray. So the crowds they they quote they quote the, our translation translates it for us. We don't know if they just said Hosanna or if they said save us, but uh, they, they're quoting uh, Psalm one eighteen. Then they quote Psalm one eighteen twenty six word for word: Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know. Maybe they had sung that hymn, that, that psalm so many times that, that it just was natural for them to think of that verse. Maybe they did or didn't know they were quoting it. Chances are they knew they were quoting it when they were saying it, uh, and they knew why they were quoting it, because what do they say? Blessed, they talk about the king the coming kingdom, verse 10, of our Father David. What are they saying? Why is the crowd so excited? Why are people not even wanting the donkey he's riding on to get its hooves dirty? It's because they believe he's the coming one. He's the Messiah. They believed without a doubt, it, whether they understood what it, what it meant or not, they knew, they believed that this man on this donkey, not a war horse, but a donkey, was the one that was prophesied to come for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he was the one promised to David in the Davidic covenant. When God promised David, his descendant would sit on the throne forever. That's a pretty big thing to say. There's a reason they were this excited. This didn't happen every other week. Every other week somebody important didn't show up and, and they, everybody ran out and shouted Hosanna and save us. And, but with Jesus they did. And they weren't, they weren't wrong. They might have been wrong in what they thought he came to do, but they weren't wrong to see him as the son of David and as his kingdom being the kingdom of, of David. They believed Jesus was the one to come, the one to inherit the throne of David, his father, and to redeem Israel. Now, did they understand exactly what that meant? Almost certainly not. Most of them probably had no real clue what he had come to do. You would have hoped that the donkey would have been a hint that this wasn't a hostile takeover, that he wasn't coming to destroy the Roman armies, but they weren't wrong to see that he was the Messiah. In fact, by their own words, quoting Psalm 118, uh, according to God's sovereign plan from all eternity, they, they showed by their words that his coming was the fulfillment of that prophecy in Psalm 118. And the last thing we see is, in verse 11, it's the king's triumph. It's a triumphal entry. What, what made it so triumphal? Why do we even call it that? You now it might seem strange to you and me, especially in Mark's account. He, he shows up, there's this big parade, everybody is, is shouting Hosanna before and after him. And then he comes into the city, goes into the temple, looks around and leaves. There's no uh, official ceremony. He doesn't, he doesn't go to the palace you know, the, the place you would expect a king to go and try to take over the throne there in, in Jerusalem. Um, you know, there's not much triumph to be seen in, in our text, at least not on, on the surface. In fact, it, it almost seems kind of like an afterthought. There's all this pomp, there's all this ceremony and celebration, and then it's almost like, okay, where's the triumph? Like, he just kind of comes in, looks around and, and leaves. Mark says in verse 11, he says, he entered Jerusalem, so he finally got where he was going. And he went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So he literally leaves. <laughs> he comes in, looks around and and goes back with his 12 disciples. Now, But notice one, what does Mark say? Where does Mark say he went? When he went into Jerusalem, where was the, where was the place in the whole town that he went? He went into the temple, verse 11. And remember, this was around the time getting close to the time of Passover, when all these pilgrims and things, all these Jewish you know, people were all from all over the world, they came for, for the Passover, he came and looked around at the temple and left. What, what, what did the temple represent? What was, what was going to happen at the temple very soon after this? Passover, the Passover lamb was going to be sacrificed. The temple was the place of sacrifice. Now, if you read through the rest of Mark's gospel, you, you won't be surprised, I don't think, to notice that much of what happens in the last six chapters happens where? The temple. Not long after this is when he tosses the, the tables over in the, in the temple, the money changers. He throws them, throws them out. The temple is going to be the center of activity from almost from here on out until the crucifixion of Christ. Again, it was almost time for the Passover and the true Passover lamb, not the one with four legs that they were all thinking about. But the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the way John the Baptist called Jesus in John one twenty nine, that's, that's who is now here. The, the real Lamb of God had shown up and had looked around the temple. And he knew when he looked around the temple at all the things, he knew what was about to come. He knew why he had come, that he had come to lay down his life as a ransom for many. So when, when Mark tells us Jesus went into the temple and looked around, it, it, it's, it's not a mistake to think that Jesus had all this in mind. He knew exactly what... W- he didn't go to the palace. He didn't come to in, on, a, on a war horse. He came humble on a donkey and having salvation. Well, how did he have salvation? It was in his death and resurrection. It was in giving his life, Mark 10.45, as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus came into Jerusalem openly, finally, because his hour had come. The reason he hadn't come in openly before this, and then he kind of hid as best he could because his hour had not come. What was his hour His hour was the time of his death. It wasn't time yet, but now now it was. And so he comes into Jerusalem in a public fashion, in a way that's sure to get the attention of his enemies, who would put in motion the events that would lead to his crucifixion. The Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, and others, you know, think about it. They're the ones of all the people on this earth. They are the ones who should have embraced him first. If anyone should have been, from an earthly perspective, expected to understand, recognize, and embrace the Messiah when they saw him, it was them, and yet they did not. That should be a fearful lesson uh, for us. It should show us that, you know, on our own, it's like we quoted John six before. Um, only those who God draws to Him come to Him. That that on our own we are not. You and I are not able on our own understand and to believe in Christ for salvation. Only God can accomplish that. Only God, as our scripture text in Isaiah fifty four said, uh, that those who are taught by God, according to Jesus' own understanding of that, interpretation of that, come come to him. Now the true triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ was not, again, it was not to be a show of military might and force, and why was that? Why did Jesus not come on a war horse? He didn't come on a war horse because the ultimate enemy of his people was not Caesar and the Roman army. They thought it was, but they were wrong. Caesar wasn't the ultimate enemy. The Roman army wasn't his biggest obstacle. Jesus, our king, came to conquer conquer our real enemy, which is sin. He came to redeem us from our sins. He did come to redeem Israel, but not from the Romans, but from sin. Even now, he is risen and enthroned. Where is Jesus enthroned? Earthly Jerusalem? No. At the right hand of God in the heavenly Jerusalem, and as, as Zechariah 9, we, we read nine nine. the very next verse, Zechariah 9.10 says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he, Christ, he the Messiah, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus, his death and resurrection led to his enthronement. It wasn't a bypass. It wasn't a diversion. It wasn't a, an obstacle keeping him from his enthronement, as many seem to think. Many have, have an odd opinion of, of the events of his, of his last week that, that Israel should have just put him on the throne. If that was the case, we'd have no redemption from our sins. His his cross and resurrection was the path to his enthronement. He is right now ruling over all things for the sake of his church. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to whom? To Christ. He is enthroned now. He will return one day with glory, as the Nicene Creed says, with glory to judge the living and the dead. But he is ruling right now. And he is ruling all things for our sake. Amen. Let's, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we have just read, we thank you for all your word, but we thank you for the triumphal entry of Christ and all that it teaches us that he came not on a war horse but he came to do battle with the evil one on our behalf he came to die in our place and not to kill, he came humble on a donkey, humble and having salvation was he, and we praise you that you loved us sinners enough that you would send your son and that he would willingly come to lay down his life as a ransom for many, even for us that we might be freely forgiven of all of our sins and wickedness before you, that we might be accepted by you, a holy God, and accepted by you as righteous in your sight, not because of anything that we have done, uh, but only for the righteousness, the perfect spotless righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you that you raised him from the dead on the third day, the first day of the week, and that even now he is reigning over all things from your right hand, interceding for us, that nothing can separate us from from your love in him. And we do pray that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you, that you might open their eyes, that you might teach them, even as as Isaiah 54 says, that you would teach them, lead them, draw them to faith in Christ, that they might have salvation in him, eternal and abundant life that's only to be found through faith in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.